Putin regime uh, expelled me from the country. They declared me a threat to national security. They raided my offices in Moscow. Uh, they ended up arresting uh, a lawyer who worked for me named Sergei Magnitsky. Um, uh, they tortured him for 358 days. Uh, and they murdered him in Russian police custody in 2009. And uh, since his murder, I've gone on a mission to get justice for him. Coming up on British Thought Leaders, I sit down with Bill Browder, author, CEO of Hermitage Capital Management and head of the Global Magnitsky Justice Campaign. Bill was the largest foreign investor in Russia until he exposed massive fraud and became Vladimir Putin's public enemy number one. For those who don't know him, you know, he's the president of a country, the president of a sovereign state. For those of us who do know him, um, he's a, uh, a thief, a mafia boss, a criminal, who spent um, now, I guess he's been in power for almost 23 years, and he spent that time stealing from the Russian people and killing anybody who reported on him or, to try to, or tried to stand in his way. Bill and his team established the Magnitsky Act, allowing governments to impose visa bans and asset freezes on human rights abusers and corrupt officials. The senators in the United States said, if Putin's so mad about this, um, Xi Jinping is not going to be so happy either if he gets stuck on this sanctions list. And so it's now been expanded to globally. And there are people all over the world who've done terrible things in China, in Myanmar, in Iran, in Nicaragua, um, all over the world. Um, who are now sanctioned under the Magnitsky Act. I'm Lee Hall and this is British Thought Leaders. Bill Browder, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Great to be here, thank you. Your story is incredible and I thoroughly recommend our, our viewers to read your books. But for those that haven't, could you tell us what happened to you and why Vladimir Putin is so against you? Well, it's a long story. <clears throat> Starts. Um, several decades ago, but I, I, um, uh, I come from a, a family of American communists. My grandfather was the head of the American Communist Party. And in rebellion, I put on a suit and became a capitalist. <clears throat> I went to business school at Stanford, and I graduated in 1989, which was the year the Berlin Wall came down. Um, and I, th <clears throat> I thought if my grandfather was the biggest communist in America and the Berlin Wall has just come down, I'm going to try to become the biggest capitalist in Eastern Europe. And so I moved to London, and then I moved to Moscow. I set up an investment fund called the Hermitage Fund, which eventually grew to become the largest investment fund in the country. Um, but in the process, as I was investing, I discovered that many of the companies that I was investing in were being robbed blind by uh, the Russian oligarchs and friends of Putin. And so I started to uh, expose the corruption. Um, I started to uh, give information to the international media about the crimes of the oligarchs. And um, after enough of these interventions, they, um, the Putin regime uh, expelled me from the country. They declared me a threat to national security. They raided my offices in Moscow. Uh, they ended up arresting uh, a lawyer who worked for me named Sergei Magnitsky. Uh, they tortured him for 358 days uh, and they murdered him in Russian police custody in 2009. And uh, since his murder, I've gone on a mission to get justice for him. And this culminated in a piece of legislation called the Magnitsky Act, named after Sergei Magnitsky. And the Magnitsky Act freezes the assets and bans the visas of people who commit human rights abuses and who steal huge amounts of money from their governments. Um, it first passed in the United States just in relation to Russia in 2012. 
Um, and then it was broadened to the rest of the world in 2016, called the Global Magnitsky Act. Um, the Magnitsky Act now exists in, in 35 countries around the world, and it's one of the most feared tools that dictators look at when, they, um, when they're dealing with the West. Mm. And the Magnitsky Act has completely changed the landscape for victims as well, because now you have some way of getting redress through this sanctions legislation. Reading your books gave me quite a different view on Vladimir Putin as, as a person and as a ruler. Can you talk to us a, a bit about him? So Vladimir Putin, um, uh, for those who don't know him, you know, he's the president of a country, yeah. uh, the president of a sovereign state. For those of us who do know him, um, he's a, uh, a, a thief, a mafia boss, a criminal, who has spent um, now, I guess he's been in power for almost 23 years, and he spent that time stealing from the Russian people and killing anybody who reported on him or, to try to, or tried to stand in his way. And uh, so from, from my perspective, he's a mafia boss who has all the powers of a sovereign state. He has a military, he has nuclear weapons, he has uh, treaties and international relations that he can draw on mm. to further his criminal enterprise. And um, that makes him a particularly dangerous type of head of state because most heads of state, even dictators in a lot of countries, have some view of, of acting in what they view as the national interest. It may be a terrible view, it may be a murderous view, but they, they view it as acting in the national interest. Putin is doing none of that. He's acting purely and only in his own criminal interests. There's always these rumors that he's the, the richest man in the world. He's taken a lot of money from the Russian people, right? Well, I, I estimate that um, Putin and about a thousand people around him um, in a 23-year period have stolen a trillion dollars really? from the Russian state. A trillion dollars, a thousand billion dollars. And Putin is by far the richest man in the world because of that. There was this um, televised summit with uh, Trump and Putin, and they talked on camera about handing you over to the Russians. How did that feel? Not good. <laughs> So, so Putin has hated me from the moment that the Magnitsky Act passed in 2012. He was so upset with the Magnitsky Act. The Magnitsky Act basically says that if you have committed human rights abuse or if you've been a kleptocrat um, and you have money offshore, that money can be frozen. And Putin is a man who's committed all sorts of terrible crimes, human rights abuses, and has lots and lots of money offshore. And so for him, the idea that his entire international wealth can be frozen is just infuriating beyond belief. Mm. And um, since the Magnitsky Act was passed, um, he's gone on a personal vendetta against me uh, to try to destroy me. And um, it started with Interpol arrest warrants. There have been eight Interpol arrest warrants issued by Russia against me. I think if there was, if there was an entry in the Guinness Book of World Records mm. for the number of Interpol arrest warrants, I, I would, uh, abusive Interpol arrest warrants, I'd be the, uh, I'd be the winner. Um, uh, Putin has tried to get me extradited from the UK. And as you mentioned, um, uh, when all other efforts failed, uh, when he was meeting with, with uh, Donald Trump at the Helsinki summit in uh, 2018, uh, Putin asked Trump to hand me over. And um, this was not something that was, that's not a rumor, <laughs> it happened on live television yeah. at the press conference. And you know, of the eight billion or so people in the world, 
the one person who was name checked at that summit was me. Um, so that was upsetting. It wasn't surprising though, because Putin has been chasing me around forever. But what was surprising was when the uh, journalist asked Donald Trump, what do you think of this? He said, I think it's an incredible offer. Yeah. And it took four days before um, the Trump administration walked that back. In 2013, the Prime Minister of Russia said, it's a shame that Bill Browder is running free and alive, which is also an incredible quote. Yeah, well, you missed the other half of the quote. So he, he started, the, so a journalist asked him about Sergei Magnitsky, and he said, it's a shame that Sergei Magnitsky is dead and Bill Browder is still alive right. and running around, right. implying that I should be dead. Yeah. I mean, what is life like living under threats like that? I mean, at this point, you'd already lost several people that you work closely with. And I've lost several more since then. Yeah. Um, and they're, they're, uh, these guys are cold-blooded killers. Mm. You know, it's um, not easy. You have to take measures, I assume. I have to take a lot of measures, yeah. countermeasures, to try to stop the potential assassination. Mm. Um, there's an expression, and it's not, I didn't make this up, but um, uh, I have to be lucky every day. Uh, they only have to be lucky once. Mm. And so far, they haven't gotten lucky, but that doesn't mean that there's not going to be a point that they do. And so I have to basically um, you know, resign myself to the fact that I've got a murderous enemy that wants me dead. For someone living under the, the threat of these uh, Russian kleptocrats, uh, London's really not a place to lie low. It seems almost a bit of a playground for them, at least it, it was until recently. Why do they like London so much? Well, the, the main reason they like London is that they can bring over a lot of money here and nobody's going to ask any awkward questions. Mm -hmm. There has not been a single prosecution of Russian money laundering or Russian economic crimes in the UK since Putin came to power. This has been... So they can bring their money here, their ill-gotten gains, their blood money, all good. And, um, uh, and so that's the place where they, they think their money is safe. And so these people who've taken all the money from the Russian people, they put it in London to, to buy properties, et cetera, as a as kind of safekeeping. And, and the politicians here don't, have not peeped a word. Not, they, right. not, until, not until Putin um, invaded Ukraine. Right, right. But up till that point, everybody was just trying to tamp it down, keep it all quiet, just, you know, just not say too much because there were some pretty important people making a lot of money off these mm. uh, flows of dirty money from Russia. So do you think the Ukraine war has been a turning point in these kind of issues? I think it's been a huge wake-up call. Okay. I mean, we haven't had a war like this, you know, since the Second World War. I mean, this is a major land invasion of a sovereign state, of another sovereign state, um, where many, many tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people are dying. Mm. And, um, you know, it's, no one's seen anything like it. And and, uh, and I think a lot of people are, are either pretending they were... Um, tough on Russia before or or just trying to lay low right now because any and there's a lot of people who were basically you know sort of enabling Putin's regime for a long time. So hearing about all of this is kind of easy to see the Russians as the bad guys and forget that they're also victims of Putin's regime. Can you tell us about some of the Russian heroes that have been part of your journey? Well there's one in particular who I want to talk about his name is Vladimir Karamurza. When I started my campaign to get Magnitsky sanctions imposed around the world, I needed a Russian voice to talk about how the Russian people 
felt about this. And this young man named Vladimir Karamurza, who was a former journalist and a Russian opposition politician, would come to different parliaments around the world. When I was speaking about the Magnitsky case, he would speak about how the Russians thought about the Magnitsky sanctions. Mm -hmm. He said, we support these sanctions because our leaders shouldn't be killing us and stealing from us. And his voice was so powerful that I would say he's 50% responsible for these 35 Magnitsky acts being passed around the world. And the, and the Putin regime was so mad at him, and Putin particularly was so mad at him, that they tried to kill him. Right. They tried to kill him with poison in 2015. Uh, he nearly died. He went into coma, multiple organ failure, stroke. He, he was within, the doctors say, gave him a 5% chance of living. Mm -hmm. He somehow just pulled through. It took him about a year to um, recover from this poisoning. He then, with his cane, went back to Moscow to continue opposing the regime. They poisoned him again in 2017. Again, he nearly died. And um, in 2022, he went back to Russia when the war started to protest the war. They arrested him sort of 10 days in, and he's now been sentenced to 25 years in jail for, quote, high treason. Right. Um, and I mean, we, we don't see that type of, of bravery much anywhere in the world. I mean, this, this is sort of Nelson Mandela type bravery. So the high treason being that he disagrees with the war in Ukraine, basically. Um, well, so they, they, they literally said it in, in their charge sheet. They said, because of a speech you gave at the NATO Parliamentary Assembly, at the U.S. Helsinki Commission, at the Norwegian Helsinki Commission, at the Sakharov Center, about human rights and about political prisoners, we're going to charge you with high treason. Well, the other, the other hero is Boris Nemtsov. Boris Nemtsov was also helping me with the Magnitsky Act. He was incredibly powerful, charismatic. Uh, he could have, Yeltsin could have chosen him and the Russia would be on a completely different course, but he chose Putin. And um, Nemtsov went into opposition to Putin and was murdered in front of the Kremlin in, in February of 2015. There's Alexei Navalny. Alexei um, is a anti-corruption activist who um, has done all this research into Putin's wealth. And there's a famous movie on YouTube called Putin's Palace. I urge everybody watching this to search it up. Hmm. I think it's got 140 million views, and it's all about a billion-dollar palace on the Black Sea that belongs to Vladimir Putin, which has got the most garish, unbelievable things and fully, fully um, sort of shocking why, how a president of a sovereign state could have a place like that. Hmm. Can you tell us a bit more about the Magnitsky Act? Uh, how did it come about, and how widespread has it become now? Well, originally, after Sergei Magnitsky was killed, I was trying to get justice inside of Russia. I said, um, how can we um, get the people prosecuted? And what I quickly learned was that there was no chance of getting justice inside of Russia. They circled the wagons. Putin even personally got involved in the cover-up. He made an announcement exonerating everybody involved. And so I said, if we can't get justice inside of Russia, we should try to get justice outside of Russia. And then we said, well, how do we get justice outside of Russia? And Sergei had been killed effectively for exposing a massive corruption scheme that Putin was participating in. And, um, and we said to ourselves, well, these people don't keep the proceeds of that corruption in Russia, they keep it in the West, mm -hmm. here in London, in the United States, in, the, in France, in Italy. And so I came up with this idea to freeze the assets and ban the visas of the people who killed Sergei Magnitsky. And um, this eventually 
sort of caught on like wildfire. Um, all these people said, yeah, this is, we don't have to sanction the whole country. We can just sanction the individuals committing the crimes. Mm. And it's much more powerful because normally when you sanction a whole country, the elite continues to fly in, you know, planes full of champagne and caviar for themselves. But that doesn't happen. If a person gets put on the sanctions list, mm. all of a sudden their assets get frozen. No bank will touch them. Nobody will do business with them anymore. They can't travel. Um, their, their families end up getting having trouble. And it's really a, a very uh, powerful punishment and potentially deterrent. Mm -hmm. And um, as I said, it was originally passed for, for just Russia, but then they globalized it. The senators in the United States said, if Putin is so mad about this, um, Xi Jinping is not going to be so happy either if he gets mm -hmm. stuck on this sanctions list. And so it's now been expanded to globally. And there are people all over the world who have done terrible things and in China, in Myanmar, in Iran, in Nicaragua, um, all over the world, um, who are now sanctioned under the Magnitsky Act. And it's, it's, it's become a viral human rights legal concept, which anybody who's ever been victimized now can draw on to try to do something with it. Uh, how widespread has it become? It's, it's literally like the whole world now. Well, there are 35 countries that have the Magnitsky Act. Okay. And there are probably, I think, maybe uh, six or 700 people or entities sanctioned by the United States. And we're just at the, at the beginning of this whole thing. I think this becomes a really um, widespread tool, almost a pedestrian tool. Where, you know, it's not even no fanfare. Just the only people who know about it are the people who are sanctioned and the people who have, commit, who have been victims of those people. And that's kind of what our hope is. Do you think there's any ways that it could be tweaked or changed to make it more effective? Well, for example, the European Union, they just have human rights abuse, but not kleptocracy as part of the offenses. Right. Um, you have uh, not that many people sanctioned here in the UK, for example. The government needs to use it much, much more liberally. And so, um, and then the other thing is that you can have one person sanctioned by one country, like say by the United States and not the U UK or the you know, Canada and, and not the EU. And so we need to harmonize these sanctions so that everybody does it all together. But, um, you know, this, this will come in time. One of the most touching moments in, in your books was uh, when you're at the European Parliament with Sergei Magnitsky's family, and then all the parliamentarians are applauding you, and then they pass the law. That must have felt like quite a fitting tribute. Well, you know, for me, the, um, the loss of Sergei and, and and for his family, you know, to, to, um, to have to live through that. I mean, to live through the slow motion assassination of their of Natalia's husband, of Nikita's father, um, uh, you know, it was really very painful, very, very painful. And to, to have some redress, to, to have some recognition, to have some something to show for it, to have something meaningful come out of it, I think really was important for them and, and for me to be there with them when, when that happened and to be recognized, I think, was really, really moving and, and helpful, helpful to try to come to terms with, with a murder which shouldn't have happened. One of the themes I, I picked up from your book is betrayal. Uh, I can see why people living in Russia under the regime would act like that. But you talk about these Western enablers. It must have been quite hard to accept how some of them behaved. Yeah, so um, one of the biggest stories in my second book is about a, a lawyer named John Moscow. Um, he was meant to be the, the top uh, anti-corruption, anti-money laundering lawyer in the world. 
and we hired him to help us track down the criminals behind the murder of Sergei Magnitsky. And um, uh, he showed up, gave us some good help, and then disappeared, knowing all sorts of stuff about our operation. Mm. We finally found the money, um, got the U.S. Department of Justice to open a uh, what they call a federal forfeiture case to seize all the money. And he shows up as a lawyer for the other side. Okay. And, um, and not only that, but he shows up and then he starts issuing me with subpoenas, asking me for all my security arrangements. Is that legal for him to, to switch sides? It wasn't legal. The, the judge eventually outlawed it, but it took like two years. I mean, the, it's, um, the wheels of justice move very slowly. Mm. Um, and why did he do that? Because um, uh, the Russians were paying huge money. Right. I think somewhere between 15 and 20 million dollars he and his law firm got. So it feels like the sad thing with this, that the people in Russia, they're doing it because they're under threat. The people outside are just doing a financial return. Yeah, I mean, it's, and, and these are people who know better. I mean, you know, the Russians, even Putin behaves the way he does. He's a psychopath that doesn't excuse him. But you can understand, you know, he's brought up in the jungle. He behaves like an animal. But these people were all brought up in, in civilized, nice, you know, went to the same schools, worshipped at the same churches, etc. All of a sudden, um, behaving like the animals that they that they're, then they know better. Mm. They they know what's going on, and and I think that in a certain way, um, you know, the behavior of these Western enablers is, is more despicable than the behaviors of the Russians themselves. Mm. Another theme I picked up on was one of cooperation. It seems. Throughout your your story, something happens. You need to find someone to help you, whether it's a lawyer or a, a colleague or a friend, and you kind of overcome that obstacle, and then the next one appears. Is that something that came from your your business life, this cooperation spirit? Well, I think that um, uh, I'm a collaborative person by nature, but um, in this particular case, um, you know, we've seen the, the most the most terrible things people do: murder, torture. You know, collaborating with murderers and torturers, obstruction of justice. Um, so we've seen really bad behavior, but we've also seen really good behavior. People coming out of nowhere who who you would never expect to be brave or never expect to be helpful, who have gone to the ends of the earth, like Vladimir Karamurza. He no one ever asked him to to do this. He just decided it was the right thing to do. And so, I, I've seen the the very best of humanity and the very worst of humanity in this in this whole saga. Another thing that I found really uh, fascinating from your story is how you use the um, videos to expose some of the things that were happening in Russia. I think it was before that was such a popular way. I think we were the very first. So, um, uh, and when I when I learned, so uh, the, we we knew so much about the bad guys, who who they were, what they stole, you know, the people who killed Sergei Magnitsky, the people who participated in the crime that he uncovered, and we knew so much about these people. And whenever we tried to um, get the journalists to write stories, they were all either scared, they didn't want to be sued, or you know, they, was, they, wanted, they, didn't have, they had 400 words in their newspaper. And even if we could convince them to get into their newspapers, maybe someone read it, maybe somebody didn't, but it, it didn't change anyone's psychology. And one day we decided to make like 10-minute YouTube videos about these people. Mm. And it completely changed everything. It was remarkable. I've never seen anything like it. And um, uh, it completely woke everybody up to the evil that we were facing. And, and a lot of people responded very robustly in political politicians and, and uh, governments, et cetera. And, um, uh, and that's turned into a, a tool that's been used by many people. As I mentioned, Alexei Navalny, the one who exposed Putin's billion dollar palace, mm -hmm. um, uh, he, 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 was, he, he was the one who took our videos and then took them to a whole new level.
and so it's um, it's a good it's a good way of of um, fighting human rights abuse. When you got arrested in Spain for one of these uh, spurious Interpol um, things, and then you put it onto Twitter, and it, it seemed to basically change the situation. Can you tell us about that? So I was um, invited to Madrid by the uh, chief anti-corruption prosecutor of Spain, a man named Jose Grinda, to give evidence on Russian criminal activity in Spain connected to the murder of Sergei Magnitsky. I show up in Spain, I'm coming out of my hotel room, and, I, and there's two um, policemen standing outside my hotel room there to arrest me on a Russian Interpol warrant. <laughs> so the people uh, <clears throat> who Jose Grinda was, was investigating <laughs> were government officials who could then put in an arrest warrant for the person who was going to testify against them. And, um, and so I, um, uh, I was in my hotel. The, the manager of the hotel was with the policeman. He was worried about me not checking out of my room properly, so he get, they gave me an opportunity to uh, pack up my stuff. And I went out of I, 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 the eyesight of the officers, and I tweeted out that I was being arrested. And, um, and after they put me into the police car, they didn't take away my phones, and I took a picture of the back of their heads say I'm in the back of the police car on the way to the police station, tweeted that out. And all hell broke loose on the internet um, on, and on Twitter. And there was um, you know, tens of thousands of likes and retweets. And, and every journalist in the world started calling up Interpol and started calling the Spanish police. Um, and by the time I got to the station, I was only there for about an hour before I was released. And, and if, if I hadn't tweeted it out, um, what would have happened is my lawyer would have gone to the judge and saying this guy you know, shouldn't have been arrested. And the judge says, well, he's a flight risk because he's here in Spain. Not, this is in his home country. I would have been sitting in a prison waiting for um, Russian, the Russians to file their extradition request. Mm. I would have been sitting there for six months. I resolved it in like one hour with Twitter. And so people say Twitter is a force for evil. In my case, it saved my life or saved six months of my life at least. And the irony being you were there to meet the, the prosecutor in Spain, weren't you? And then the people who went beneath him were I mean, it's crazy, the, 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 the abuse of the system by the Russians, just crazy. You, you, you lost a lot from uh, undertaking this journey. I mean, obviously, an enormous amount of money, um, the, the safe family life that a lot of us take for granted, and the ability to travel without worrying that you know, the Russians might grab you at some point. But what have you gained from it all? Well, I think that I've gained a lot more than I've lost, which is a mission, a righteous mission, not just for myself, not just for Sergei, but for, for all victims. I've, I've um, uh, by, by uh, being forced into this position of trying to get justice, I've, I've learned something, which is that fighting for justice is, is infinitely satisfying compared to fighting for, for money. And, and I found a true cause that I can work on for the rest of my life and wake up every day feeling targeted towards, towards a mission, which um, is very powerful. Where, where can people go if they want to find out more? Um, my, my Twitter feed, I'm, I'm always on Twitter, at, at Bill Browder. Um, we have, if you want to watch some of these videos we made, it's uh, called Russian Untouchables on YouTube. Uh, there's also a website, uh, www.russianuntouchables.com. Or you can read my books, um, they're, they're right here, um, Red Notice and Freezing Order. Bill Browder, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thank you.